LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we present part 2 with Jason Horsley discussing his book Prisoner of Infinity, UFOs, Social Engineering and the Psychology of Fragmentation. In this second session we delve further into the depths that lie beneath the surface of culture and society, seething with secret agendas, mind control and mass manipulation. Its hidden realms may hold secret knowledge for transformation and transcendence on paths to enlightenment or oblivion. Where physics meets psyche, forces seen and unseen, some of them human, conspire toward ends which often does not appear beyond conscious comprehension. A quest for wholeness, communion with the creator, the truth of the ultimate nature of reality, or something far more mysterious, we simply cannot say. But the questions remain. What is the agenda? Who or what are they? And what part do we play? Hello and welcome, Jason, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Oh, thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. Uh, Today, Jason, we're going to be doing a follow-up chat to one that we did a few months back, and it concerns your book, uh, Prisoner of Infinity, UFOs, Social Engineering and the Psychology of Fragmentation. Now, for listeners who haven't read the book, I'd urge them to do so. But for our purposes, perhaps have a listen to that aforementioned previous chat that we did, um, UFOs, Trauma and Hacking the Human Psyche, which they can find at LegalizeFreedom.com. If they just put your name, for example, into the search box, they can find that. They may also be interested in the talks we did about Vice of Kings, a more recent book of yours. And again, you can find those at LegalizeFreedom.com. Uh, before we get started today, just give listeners a little bit of information about your background and work in general. Uh, well, writer, uh, born in England, born in Yorkshire, uh, lifelong interest in films, uh, which sort of transformed in my 20s into a abiding interest in occultism, shamanism, uh, paranoid awareness, social engineering, conspiracies, and uh, so I've kind of been fusing the three together, like the, my interest in culture, particularly popular culture, my interest in spirituality, and I would say it's kind of evil twin occultism, and my interest in uh, deep state, parapolitical, social engineering agendas and whatnot. They all seem quite to flow uh, seamlessly into one another in my life and experience, but I've been trying to present that through a series of books that I've been writing for the last 20 years. Well, when we last spoke, as I say, which was about 
Prisoner of Infinity and things spinning off from that. I hadn't even completed the book at that point uh, because there was just basically so much to it, so much to think about, you know, so many points that I had to sort of put it down and give some time to thought and re- to, uh, to thought and reflection. When I was writing some notes, when I came back to complete the book, and I was trying to think, you know, what, what is for me, you know, what is this book about? What is it saying to me? What, what is it communicating to me? And I had this phrase, which was agendas or the agenda. If someone asked you briefly, oh, so Jason, Prisoner of Infinity, what's that about? How do you describe the book? Mm-hmm. Well, I do get that question sometimes in the thrift store that I work because we, we have my books on display and occasionally somebody asks me to explain it or on indeed on podcasts and whatnot. And I, I tend to get a brain seizure. <laughs> uh, I, I, it's really hard to sum up. I mean, that's the point of your question, isn't it? So it will depend on the moment, really, uh, try and get a sense of what the person is interested in. I mean, clearly there's a superficial answer, which is it's about alien abductions and government mind control and the intersection between those two things. And I say that's superficial, obviously. I mean, that's that's a fairly profound question, or a very profound question, isn't it, sociopolitically speaking and culturally. But I would still say it's super, superficial as compared to what I'm really attempting in that book, which is to understand the human psyche and the the way that it interfaces with society and culture. And, I mean, I, I paused there because I wasn't sure whether to say just reality, because I think in our pure state, uh, the psyche is supposed to just inter- interface directly with reality through the body, so that would just be nature. But, of course, we're... We're in a heavily uh, socialized time in history where human beings are, are increasingly socialized. And I see that kind of socialization process as something that has got out of hand or has become basically malign or destructive to the psyche. And, and so my books are all about that in different ways, but none more than Prisoner Infinity, I think. And one way I would sum up the nature of this agenda, which can be extended to the whole of society rather than localized conspiracies. I think there's a much larger agenda, which is kind of collective unconscious drive as a result of trauma. And the way I sum that up is is the, the disembodiment agenda that we're being pushed and at the same time unconsciously uh, driving ourselves into more and more disembodied or less and less embodied states of being so there's increasing schism between the the psyche or the soul and the body and i think that that is compatible with more profane socio-political agendas also known as conspiracies to strip us of and prevent us from ever attaining any kind of autonomy or wholeness which of course makes us that much easier to control and manage. All my life, I've been trying in different ways, consciously and unconsciously, to understand or reality to, to, to see more clearly. And I had this instinctual feeling very early on that the unseen was a bigger component than the scene, as it were, as far as we are concerned. And there's a certain 
frustration. I don't like to use that word. I don't ever like to describe myself as frustrated, but a certain yearning for something that most, I mean, most of us can't quite articulate, even if we come to that conclusion. We don't really know what it is that we're, we're not having or not getting or, or not where we're not going. But, and this overlaps and I resonated with some of the points you made in your book about certain agendas and groups and individuals who maybe in their own way are trying to achieve certain things, a certain type of gnosis or understanding or to transcend what appears to be our very limited senses and abilities and understanding. One phrase that I actually used it towards the end of our last chat, I don't think we recorded this, but when I was talking about, oh, look, I'm going to have to get back to you when I finish the book, I said, you know, maybe next time we can talk about the blah, 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 this, that, and the other thing. And the stormers of heaven was a phrase, mm. a phrase that I pulled from your book. So in the context of what I've just said and what you, agenda or agendas, perhaps explain who or what you mean. I know this is a huge question, but just in some kind of uh, digestible way, what you mean, what you're, what that phrase is denoting. Sure, it comes from the gospel. Can't remember which one. It might be John. In terms of a warning about those who would storm heaven, uh, which which means taking heaven by violence, trying to enter paradise, which we could say is a metaphor or a religious symbol for wholeness, communion with our soul, completeness oneness with God, etc. And the, uh, yeah, the gospel refers to those who will attempt to do this through violence, um, which by definition is impossible, but uh, it won't stop them from trying. And in Prisoner Infinity, I mean, I came upon that. That was the inception of the book, as it turned out, that concept of storming heaven in relation to this piece by Jeffrey Kripal, The Traumatic Secret, about George Bataille and Whitley Strieber, and his thesis that it is possible that some forms of trauma might lead to enlightenment, and then he extends it even using the parallel of the Hadron Collider and how these scientists, these scientific programs, are attempting to attain a complete understanding of nature and of reality through smashing atoms together and to see what they're made of. So this idea of using violence to get to the, the deepest truth about existence uh, is presented by Kripal as a literal fact scientifically, but also a metaphorical example. I mean, he uses it as a metaphor for this idea he has about storming heaven or attaining enlightenment through trauma. Now, to be fair to Kripal, He's not overtly um, proposing that we attempt to attain enlightenment by being traumatized or we attempt to enlighten others by traumatizing them. But he is making a direct correlation between this idea, this spiritual and metaphysical idea of enlightenment through trauma with the Hadron Collider, which, of course, is, is an example of the use of the will you know, in deliberate programs and agendas trying to bring about results. And then he juxtaposes that with Whitley Strieber, who himself has claimed to have been a victim of MKUltra-style mind control uh, programs as a child, to have been severely traumatized and to have had his mirror of expectation, as he puts it, shattered because of this psychic fracking and to have accessed 
the higher reality in which he encountered these visitors that he writes about, these supposed non-human or ultra-human beings or whatever, however we're going to try and describe them. So Kripal uses that then as a, as a, as a apparently real-world example of how, because of Strieber's trauma, uh, he attained a kind of enlightenment as in access to this higher reality or what you refer to as the invisible realms. So I do believe that there is a, an ongoing belief and philosophy or a long-standing belief and philosophy that corresponds with an ongoing, we could say, secret program. We wouldn't ha- have to reduce it to that, the, the more nuts and bolts paranoid perspective, because it would also include cultural movements and philosophies such as Georges Bataille and the surrealist attempt to fuse dream reality with waking reality, uh, Castaneda's books about sorcery, Crowley, there's count occultism in general I would say about the will to power, using the will to attain uh, knowledge that will then lead to power which is a kind of I think that there's a conflation between two things here. One is knowledge-based power, and the other is enlightenment. And first of all, I don't think those two are related. And and I think that this would relate, bringing it back to the biblical source thing, that the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament was this attempt of human beings to to reach the realm of the gods through will, through building this, this great machine or this great tower, and of course, you know, God cast them down and put a curse on us, the Babel, so that we wouldn't even be able to communicate with one another. So we fell lower than we had been before we attempted to attain heaven because we were using these illegitimate methods. And that can be taken as metaphorical, of course. It could also be taken as literal. And lots of people do, but I think I tend to stay in the realm of the psychological and which is it corresponds with physical and literal actual reality, but it it begins with a deeper, subtler internal reality, and this is the reality of the psyche and what happens when we're traumatized and how a traumatic imprint, which is like an implant, which is like a program in a certain sense, like trauma, you could say creates a, a viral program in the psyche by splitting it and turning it against itself. And that one of the results of this, and I, and I argue in Prison Infinity this has been consciously used, is to imbue a traumatized psyche with a pathological drive to attain power. And because of the experience of powerlessness that, that you know, was, was in, um, created by the, by the trauma, by the abuse, the unbearable experience of being powerless, it causes a fragmentation in which you could say, to simplify it, you could say there are two aspects. One is the powerless, traumatized part, and that gets pushed down into amnesia, into forgetting the trauma itself. And then what's left is this superegoic part that is, uh, on the one hand, protecting the total person or awareness from the memory or the experience of powerlessness and trauma. On the other hand is pathologically driven to attain power because of that formative experience of powerlessness and that I'd say is the is the trauma genesis of the heaven storm they are they're so heavily 
impacted by some forms of trauma and that that loss of paradise that splitting off of the psyche from the body and even from itself that that desperate yearning as you put it does turn into um, an overwhelming frustration and even rage that then gets sublimated and channeled into so-called spiritual practice I would say pseudo spiritual practices which are much more congruent with what we know of as occultism as well as uh, more profane things scientism and whatnot and seeking you know fame and success in the world it clearly um, doesn't lead to wholeness it, it just perpetuates the wound by constantly trying to attain a, a, a pseudo kind of wholeness rather than the true heaven which can only be accessed through surrender like storming is the opposite of surrender so it's it's a luciferian drive essentially which is milton's uh, famous uh, paradise lost when he has lucifer declaring that it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven that would be the unconscious or the the hidden battle cry of the heaven stormer I wonder if there's anything, any sort of Promethean overtones to it as well. Yeah. Now, there's a lot to unpack in what you've just said. So as a result, my points may not feel like they're proceeding directly from the previous one, but that's just, that's, right. that, that's the nature that's of it. And that's, uh, that's what the book did to my, to my thinking and to my brain. But I mean, as far as Hadron Collider is concerned, I've called that the, the world's largest cathedral and not without reason. It always seemed to be summed up best in, in the violence of that place. We always seem to be looking outside of ourselves, don't we, for whatever it is we're looking for. You know, looking for yeah. it in the world, you know, and, and in things and in even in others. You know, the answers are always somewhere else. Yeah. Well, I, I, that's even in the, in the Christian idea of heaven as it's become literalized as a place. Uh, and even, I mean, this intersects and as I recount or try and lay out in part two of prisoner infinity there's a there's a superimposition in modern times postmodern times of scientism transhumanism and the quest to conquer space onto the old the ancient belief in heaven that just shows how there's been a steady progression of a literalization of a metaphorical reality or truth which corresponds with an exteriorization as you say of looking more and more outside of oneself for a place or, or, or a thing um, that is going to provide the peace that we're seeking. And, of course, it that's why I say by definition it doesn't work. Storming heaven itself, you're already starting from the, from the, the erroneous assumption that heaven is some place with gates that have to be stormed, that's something outside of oneself as opposed to what Devashana calls the journey of zero distance. It's a state, it's our natural state that we've been cut off from through this trauma. And because of that split, I think there's a part of us which is exteriorized, which hasn't been able to land or dwell in the body. The trauma has pushed uh, our consciousness out of the body because of the unbearable pain and the toxins that were put in the body by the trauma. Part of our awareness and even the, the primary part, you know, our, our mental awareness, if you will, our conscious awareness, has exteriorized. It's outside of our body. Not literally in the sense that we can, we're still seeing through the body the senses and so on. 
Um, but our awareness is in our mind, if you think about it, it's in our thoughts rather than in our body. We're, we're generally not aware of what's going on in our body. We're not aware of our heart beating or our breathing or our sensations generally unless they become, you know, extreme cold or heat or pain or something. Our awareness is generally on our thinking and our emotions. And, and so where are they located? Well, they may actually be located in the body, but we're not referring to the body, we're referring more to mental images and associations, memories and so on. So I'd say that this is this mind self that's created through trauma is in a certain sense perhaps literally outside of the body, maybe energetically in some way that we can't see with our senses. And so because we've exteriorized through trauma, we then have more and more of these mental or conceptual constructs which are external to ourselves that we're looking outside of our bodies rather than inside of our bodies for heaven but heaven is is within i mean that's even in the gospel isn't it the kingdom is within us yes now in, in pop psychology the concept of transformation transformation through trauma is is quite common these days and we can all think of people who've maybe gone through some terrible event you know bereavement or addiction or something that's happened in their life that ultimately they feel has has opened them up into a better and wider reality at the end of it all. You know, sort of, oh, I was I, was, I wasn't really living. You know, and this terrible thing happened to me, but I it opened my eyes, and you know, I was able to move through this trauma and come out of it. You know, more a, a better person, more aware, more complete, whatever it happens to be. But in the context that we're talking about, you make the point in the book. You know, does it simply look like enlightenment? And clearly one has to take that on a case-by-case basis because I'm not arguing against the possibility that one can heal one's trauma and, and by doing so one attains a, a wisdom that one perhaps would not have had if one hadn't been traumatized. And, but that's very different than thinking that trauma itself somehow leads to enlightenment. It's, it's the integration of trauma mm-hmm. that would be a return to wholeness and I think that that is relatively rare as compared to, well, I guess there's two alternatives that are much more common. One is simply shut it away, don't go there, it's the past, let sleeping dogs lie, there's nothing to be gained by self-examination or navel-gazing or any of that, you know, there's, 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 that's pretty common, is that viewpoint, is that really... It's best not to think about it. It was a terrible thing. So just move on. And you will find that if you ever try and explore your own, not you personally, but anyone, uh, personal family abuse or trauma, whatever there might be in one's past, one will find uh, generally one will encounter a lot of resistance from family members who will say exactly that. Why are you digging up the past? Why are you blaming your parents or whatever it is when, of course, it, it doesn't have to be that at all uh, well maybe digging out the past part is true but it doesn't have to involve any kind of blame or recrimination or regret it's simply a, a desire to become whole and by allowing one's awareness to go where it, it, it has been prevented from going but anyway the other way that uh, that you refer to that people tend to I think um, misunderstand trauma or have a, have a false relationship with it is, is that they discover through trauma the 
the benefits of dissociation, if you will, as in dissociation is a means to deal with trauma, but it's also a means to escape reality and to enter into fantasy. I mean, that's what dissociation allows for. I won't say that it is, because I think dissociation in its simplest term is simply you're, you, you disassociate from what is happening in the moment because it's unbearable. So it provides a, a relief. But one can disassociate consciously and, I mean, this is most common in when somebody has an out-of-body experience of a person being raped, say, they might experience themselves actually out of their body looking down at the, the rape as it's occurring. That would be a very literal kind of disassociation. But in that experience, one is at least aware that it's still happening and that, some, that one has dissociated. So one can then, in theory, I've not had this experience, one can choose to return to the experience whenever one feels ready. On the other hand, to use this example, one could say, oh, I've disassociated, something terrible is happening to my body, but I'm not in it anymore, so I can just fly off to other planets and hang out with aliens like Whitley, and I don't ever have to come back to my body again, or at least I certainly don't have to come back until this terrible thing is over, and I won't have any memory of it because I wasn't there when it happened. And in the meantime, I've discovered this amazing power to exteriorize, as in to astral project, whatever, if we're going to take it literally, but to dissociate in such a way that I can completely forget about the physical, this, this lived reality, and go off into these other realms, which may or may not be real, psychic and or um, fantasy. Right? How, how do we know which is which? There's clearly a... A spectrum there, like when we dream at night, sometimes it seems real, and sometimes we know it's just brain, you know, stuff being worked out, because some people would say that it all is, but in my experience there definitely is. There are dreams that are, are, do correlate with reality per se. So anyway, um, I think that that's what Kripal's talking about as, and what you're referring to as, misuse of trauma and the pseudo-enlightenment, which is traditionally in the East that was about cities, as in psychic abilities. And I do, I'm absolutely sure that trauma can, because it, it splits the psyche, um, you could say that it, it shatters or it punctures a natural shield that we have that's part of the psyche that protects us from psychic phenomena, you know, from being too exposed and too vulnerable to these psychic forces, whatever they are. And so if that gets damaged through trauma, then suddenly we may have access to those psychic realms, including entities and so on, and therefore we become more vulnerable, but we also become more powerful, in quotes. I mean, maybe it's a true sort of power, but definitely a double-edged sword, and uh, not to be mistaken with enlightenment, which correlates with wholeness, with a natural state. And I think there's a natural psychism which is similar to what animals have. Like bodily, we are in tune with what's going on in the invisible realms. But that's very different from actually splitting off from the body and kind of joining the invisible realms uh, and then becoming subject to them. And, and that's probably, you know, the, the heaven stormers, they may well feel they succeed in some way. They may be able to enter bardo realms into subjective psychic realms or even create their own 
through these cities and and have a relative you know eternity in some counterfeit heaven where they get to rule <laughs> you know but it's actually hell in disguise well if some victims of trauma feel that they have inadvertently gained access to some sort of hidden realm you still seem to also be saying that there's a there's a dimension that certain aspects of the violence that we spoke about earlier whether it's atom smashers certain occult practices child abuse that certain groups individuals whatever trying to somehow actively exploit those to gain access to hidden realms that that's part of the that can be part of the um a process well yeah i do believe that but it's it's very difficult to sum it up because there are there are different ways of looking at it and understanding it and uh, it's clearly by definition it's not something that we have much direct experience on unless we happen to be unfortunate enough to be participating in those practices or rituals and all victims of it now if we're victims of that we might not remember it um in my case i don't know to what extent i was um but even there we're getting into a strange twilight realm of a spectrum of society and culture in which these kind of practices um although on the one hand they can be reduced if you like to specific agendas times in history individuals victims and so on and then so then they are made to look like something separate from our experience and separate separate from society at large i think that uh, essentially society and culture as we know it is the result of these practices so then that makes it impossible really to to separate out um and so very very hard to talk about and i feel as i you know i've just been talking around your question there because it was such a big one essentially you're saying that the principles that we're talking about today can be applied consciously uh and so yeah, my, i mean the simple answer to that is is yeah for sure i mean if you and i can talk about it with some um rudimentary understanding it's it's impossible not to imagine that there aren't people with a much deeper understanding and as with the hadron collider although much more um profoundly uh without any kind of ethical checks and bounds to prevent them from you know applying that that knowledge destructively to their own advantage so you know i i do write about these programs including mk ultra and so on but i always try to bring it back to well two things one my own personal direct experience with which hopefully co- corresponds with with yours with other people so they can relate and and the other thing is culture at large as in what we know and what we all agree about culture which isn't necessarily the same what we think we know about society and culture um because that's the reference point you know unlike let's say quote conspiracy theories unquote there's a lot of room for speculation by definition these are theories there is um there's definitely a realm of historical fact and then shared culture that we all kind of agree on even if i think we need to question that 
So I try to, to keep it within the realms that we're all familiar with. And even if we're not conscious, like even if we, we're um, prevented from really recognizing our familiarity through amnesia and so on and so forth. But we're, I would say we're all familiar with trauma. We're all familiar now with the lexicon or the rhetoric, rhetoric of sexual abuse, uh, even if we don't have direct experience, although I'd say that's unlikely because I'd say most people now probably know somebody who's a victim of sexual abuse and know it. I mean, we all definitely know loads of people who are, but we might not, they might not talk about it. But I'd say most people know somebody who talks about it at this point. And I certainly know dozens of people at this point. And there's a, there's a growing understanding about what, what sexual abuse is and what's, what's, how sexual predators operate. So what I was trying to get to here, take me a while, was that even if you just look at that, how a sexual predator, male or female, use the uh, effects of trauma to control their victim and to protect themselves, to terrorize the victim, to prevent the victim from speaking about it, even to prevent the victim from remembering it, um, to possess the victim, figuratively speaking, and have control over them, to get them to do their bidding, and so on, right? So I think it's much easier if we look at, if we look at the personal and the individual, and then from there we can start to extrapolate and or even juxtapose it with what we see in the culture which is what I've done in my recent books. Like the culture is just imbued with all of these signifiers, um, such as heaven storming and the will to power and so on. Then what's, what's called memes, right? There are trends, there are cultural trends, beliefs that, we're, that are propagated and are instilled in us from childhood because we can see them in the uh, in a childhood media as well, children's media. Those, those two things can be juxtaposed quite persuasively I think that's why I come back to Jimmy Savile so often we know about what Jimmy Savile did uh, he was like a one-man MK ultra if you, if you will and um, not that he was working alone and he was a children's entertainer right? so so it's kind of all embodied in that one cultural boogeyman who was once a cultural hero yeah well, we talked about Savile before uh, so I won't really backtrack on that simply for me to repeat for the benefit of listeners who haven't uh, checked out any of our previous interviews, it's just simply that with Savile, my situation uh, growing up in the 1970s, you know, in his most prolific period, uh, however you want to use the word prolific, I always just thought on a simplistic, childish level, what is this guy's talent? Why is this, why is this kind of freakish dudes all dude on TV because uh, normally I was used to seeing you know good looking guys and girls on TV you know the sort of usual people that get selected possibly more for their looks and their talent but he seemed to have neither and it always mystified me but I always felt there was something creepy about the guy uh, well there just self-evidently was to me but again whether consciously or unconsciously we all collectively just denied what was in front of our own eyes well certainly and it's hindsight that's twenty twenty, isn't it mm, because yeah, of I don't know, you know, I, I can't say for sure what I thought about Jimmy Savile at the time, but he certainly was successful with Jim Will Fix It, and part of the success of Jim Will Fix It was that all these kids wanted to be on the show, so they clearly didn't think he was creepy at a conscious level. They they, they wanted to sit on his lap, you know. So, so that's, I mean, there's something deeply creepy in that, is that the sexual predator somehow can 
uh, summon enough charisma, which is also, as I write, a side effect of trauma, I believe. It's a city. Charisma is a city, a power, um, to spellbind his victims or her victims. Yeah, I like to call it, I mean, charisma, I always think of as a positive thing, but maybe, I don't know, was enchantment a better word uh, to fit in with that spellbinding ability? You know, the ability to sort of, to, to, a bit like, you know, um, the, you know, the, the, the exploit in Star Wars with the Force, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for. It's like, forget the evidence of your senses. It is not like that. It is how I say. Yeah. Yeah. But that is charisma. I mean, charisma in anthropologically, um, charisma is a shamanic power that, that involves weather control. And it's, it's very curious how they use charisma anthropologically. Uh, and I think there's definitely a reason for that. It corresponds with our reality. But the whole of our culture has, uh, has come about through trauma genesis, you know, correspond, congruent with, with the traumas that are being generated in us psychically in the culture that creates and the way that our dissociation corresponds with cultural fantasies and so on and so forth. And so anyway, within that context of, um, a trauma, uh, generated culture and a culture that that generates trauma, so a trauma genetic culture. Uh, charisma, we just think of charisma as, um, you know, something that, that lucky people have, you know, something that celebrities have. And we don't, we don't think consciously we're being enchanted here, that glamour magic is work, i.e. we're being made to uh, ignore evidence that tells us something that the, this individual doesn't want us to know primarily that they're a sociopath i mean i do think that probably most celebrities like most politicians and most cultural leaders are sociopaths i don't want to oversimplify that because i know there's a lot of people who do believe that now and they probably don't have the basis for believing it i would say i have uncovered enough evidence in my own life and in my own researches to believe it and you know i'd recommend the reader rather than just taking me at my word to refer to that because it is important if one is going to have beliefs to really base them on 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 knowledge um so yeah i don't want to oversimplify that but i'm trying to illustrate a point about charisma that if somebody has a very powerful charisma one of the effects of that might be that they like ted bundy they could conceal completely from our awareness their malevolent character and we would just think they were lovely wonderful people you've written in all of this also extensively about your own personal experience and family background you're mentioning earlier that you knew to some extent dozens of people who'd been victims of abuse of whatever kind and you're sort of saying that you know we all know someone uh just on a personal note um i don't think i do no i've there's one person who used to be in my life who I did wonder uh, whether they were a victim of sexual abuse, but the information I had to go on just simply said there was something bad, uh, something dark in their past that was being pushed down and don't go there. But I didn't have, you know, any more information to come to a firm conclusion. So is it a case that probably I have met lots of people in whatever context, who have been victims of abuse. Uh, because this relates to a question we asked in a previous interview, like how deep does the rabbit hole go? Uh, particularly in Vice of Kings, you prompt us to think about this. How widespread are 
networks of abuse, how many how many people are unspoken victims of organized abuse, and, and on and on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, to a large extent, the signals we get from the world correspond with the signals we emit, we transmit. So, clearly, you know, as a counterpoint to your own case, because I talk openly about sexual abuse, organized or otherwise, including my own, I I both attract a lot of people who are victims of it and who want to talk to me about it, plus I would um, encourage people who already know me to speak about it, because I'm speaking about it. Like if you were to go around, if you yourself had a memory of being sexually abused and it was something that you talked openly about, I'm sure that you would find that more people that you know would say, oh, as long as we're talking about this, right? They're not simply going to bring it up. They're They're going to need a context, and this is assuming that they remember it. Which of course is is a whole other question. You know, how many people are walking around carrying, you know, suppressed memories of abuse? And I, well, I don't really want to get into that right now because that's that's a, that's a big unknown. Um, but if we just stay with with this, you know, how many people who do have some memory are talking about it, or even some suspicion? Let's say that really depends on the on, on the right space. I mean, it's. It's the safe space, and even if it's just safe enough, I mean, people who come into my thrift store talk about it, and and the thrift store is a public space, so it's not a traditionally or conventionally safe space like a therapist's office. But something about, I mean, the fact that my wife and I run it. My wife talks openly not about her sexual abuse, but about sexual abuse as a subject. Um, I've, I've got books about it on display. Most people don't, I think, know what's in those books and they don't listen to my podcast or anything. So it's, and, and I don't talk about it. So it's, it's more mysterious. It's, people feel some kind of affinity. I mean, I think there is, there was a experiment that was done. I can't cite, you know, the name or the date or anything, but, uh, with a large room with, a large number of people there and they were asked to mingle randomly and it was observed afterwards over time that the those who had suffered a certain kinds of sex it wasn't just about sexual abuse it was about their general history but anyway they were grouped together so in this case the example you know, specifically it would be victims of a certain kind of sexual abuse would end up grouping together with with you know victims of a similar kind of sexual abuse without knowing it and without talking about it that the body language communicated so so that's i mean 90% of what we communicate is nonverbal mm-hmm. anyway um and you know the whole premise about sexual abuse and trauma is that it goes in the body and it's carried in the body so very much this is something that um to mention Dave O'Shana again who who I've been working with quite a lot and learning a lot from more direct sort of experiential place about trauma. Uh, he talks about this, how our unconscious mannerisms are our body's attempt to tell the story or to reveal the secrets of, of our past. So clearly that would be primarily trauma or, you know, whatever end of the spectrum or wherever it is on the spectrum. We've all been traumatized. 
uh, to some degree or another. Now, it's not always sexual. It's not always physical. It can be emotional and mental. But there are still degrees of trauma. And to, to the extent that they don't get integrated or dissolved or healed, they stay in the body. And so then our way of speaking, our way of talking, our way of moving, our way of being in the world um, is constantly communicating this. Like we're trying to tell our story unconsciously. So, yeah, that, that's, that's the long answer. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is perhaps you don't want to know. That's also possible. You don't really want to talk about those things and don't want to hear about those things. And and so you you signal that. That's also possible. This is true. And we don't like to think of ourselves as attracting or repelling um, you know, attracting things we don't want or repelling things that we do want, but of course it, it happens. Now, you mentioned MK Ultra. Uh, if people who don't know what that is, just put it into your favorite search engine and, um, you can find out about that, uh, secret intelligence agency program that ran for many years. In terms of the aforementioned access to hidden realms, access to mind at large and the role of, you know, occult groups and, shadowy intelligence agencies and uh, governmental and non-governmental organizations in all of this, which is obviously is massive. Uh, tying it in with what you said earlier about Tower of Babel and Babel, in fact, you know, our in- inhibited communication, you get the feeling that in terms of occult knowledge, looking beyond the hidden realms, that there's a, there's a, as far as most of us are concerned, you know, the great unwashed, the mass of the public, it's like coming from, Wherever it is, you know, on high from beyond, it's like nothing for you here. Stay away. This isn't for you. And in fact, there's nothing to it anyway. So yeah, you're wasting your time. But evidence such as, you know, the, the activities at the Hadron Collider seem to suggest that, that some of these same people think otherwise. So going along with this feeling of exclusion, like, you know, for the likes of you and me, you know, it's like stay away. There also seems to be the feeling that we're, that we're somehow needed in terms of some of these agendas. You know, we have to be brought along for the ride <laughs> in some way. So it's like, ah, oh, we don't want, you know, this knowledge isn't for you, but actually we require, we have to coerce you into involvement somehow because that's part of the process as well. Well, I think there's a bit of reverse psychology going on there because I think, I think we are, I think the occult so-called First of all, I think it's a misnomer. Nothing is hidden. It's just split off from our awareness. But, you know, we, we are avoiding something, keeping something out of awareness because it's threatening or painful. So that's very different from something being hidden. However, I think the idea of the occult, that something is hidden and that we have to somehow find it and get it like a buried treasure, uh, is very powerful, and I think that idea has been generated and used as a form of control. If you imagine a group or a clique that does have some certain knowledge that it uses, that applies to control people, um, it's important that it keeps that knowledge to itself, but it can also use that idea that it possesses hidden knowledge or occult power as a means of controlling people itself, because you know, they will then look to this group or this imagined um, 
power as something a that is they don't have and therefore is over them that makes them inferior uh, and powerless before and b as something they want so then they're they're both kind of beholden to this group if you will uh, and feel inferior to it because they're made aware that it knows something that we don't I'll turn it into the first person now and b we desire we want access to that group we want to become part of it and that makes us easier to control also if you think about it it's not just fear and but it's also desire because we're not just afraid of the repercussions of being on the wrong side of that group because it can crush us with its occult knowledge we also want to curry its favor because we want to try and gain access to that world so we're doubly damned, if you will, we're doubly controlled. We're not only are we going to avoid offending it, we're actually going to be sucking up to the powers that be. And that we can definitely see that in our world. And I think that occult knowledge has been used this way, as in there's this whole idea about the secrets of the occult and whatnot. But the internet and bookstores are flooded with information that's supposedly secret, you know. And uh, uh, and people are lapping it up like they they don't really and that's true with conspiracy theory like all this stuff out there David Icke or Alex Jones supposedly revealing the truth about these secret conspiracies well they're not and how powerful and effective they are at controlling us well they haven't been very effective about keeping it secret have they um, and yet so there's something very contradictory in that uh, and that, that somehow we've been conditioned not to notice, I'd say. Is there also an, an element of, you know, the power of the abuser, uh, of something being explicit, open, and, you know, hidden in plain sight, is it where you see this uh, sometimes in sort of master-slave relationship? It's like, yes, I'm openly and explicitly doing this to you. What are you going to do about it? Nobody, yeah. no, nobody, other people can see this. They're not going to do anything. Your cries for help uh, will go unheeded, as it were. I don't know if there's a dimension of that, which is a little bit like magic in itself. You know, it's like say it and it will be so sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. And I think it's probably related because to what I was trying to say, which is that because what you're describing there is, is to disempower someone. You've already stripped them of power by controlling and abusing them but then like jimmy Salva, you're going to joke and brag about it in front of them mm -hmm. to, to show that nobody cares and there's nothing you can do about it and that this person is so powerful they don't even have to conceal it um and insofar as i mean you're extending it to them sort of bragging about things that you weren't even aware were being done to you so now you are, what are you going to do about it? Well, if the answer is nothing, which it generally is, because they're not giving you, they may be giving you some profound occult so-called information, but they're not telling you how to apply it or what to do about it, um, then chances are, yeah, you won't do anything about it. So then that not doing in and of itself is a consent. I think there is something in that, the, the tradition of the vampire as well, that has to be invited over the threshold. Um, so first of all, the vampire has to knock. It's, it's a bit confusing because in some vampire stories he, he just slips in through the window and stuff, so I'm not sure it's not very consistent there. But anyway, there is that idea that the vampire has to knock and has to be invited in. I think that that's a, that's a symbolic account of what we're talking about here, which is, to a certain extent, these powers, these forces, these individuals need our consent. The other thing 
that I was saying I think corresponds here, which is more new to me, which is to do with if you give people knowledge without them having earned it, basically if you just tell them this is the nature of what's going on in the world or or what we're doing to you. And with conspiracy theory those and occultism also those two things tend to, you know, be be the be one thing, what's going on in the world and also what we're victims of. Um, if you give people that knowledge without um, them having done the necessary procedure to discover it themselves, they're just being given it, it's actually disempowering because it it strips them of the opportunity to really discover something and to have a knowledge that's grounded in their own insight, experience, research, deduction, and so on. So it will be true knowledge. Knowledge that's simply given or imparted isn't true knowledge because we haven't come upon it through our own resources, through our own autonomous choices. Uh, we've just had it thrust upon us. This is a Promethean thing again. Um, so I think, I mean, this is something I'm only just beginning to realize about how much information out there. Because I've often wondered, you know, what, what is it about David Icke or Alex Jones that I don't like besides their method of delivery? Because a lot of the information I find in my own research is, can be confirmed, not the reptilians, obviously, but, you know, a lot of it seems like good information. But it's, it's the way it's imparted. So what is that? And, and I've just begun to realize that it's, it's to do with this. It's that people who are given knowledge willy-nilly like that, they feel as though it's empowering them. But actually, because it's, it's overwhelming, There's, they don't know how they came about it. It was just some guy who told them. They can't confirm or validate it. They can't apply it. And they can't put it in the context of their own personal experience because they didn't come across it through personal experience. They just came across it on the Internet. Now, I mean, that is a spectrum, because, I mean, I wrote Vice of Kings, I was researching a lot on the Internet, but I was con and Prisoner Infinity, but I was constantly referring back to my own family history and my own personal experience of trauma and my own understanding of psychology and constantly trying to ground it in that context, precisely in order to um, neutralize this effect that I'm talking about, that... that knowledge that is kept hidden but then revealed in this way uh, it's like a it's like a magician's trick or something it's a way you disempower people by taking the knowledge away from them and by letting them know that they don't know something but then you give it to them and that disempowers them further like it's it's very very cunning and sophisticated i think the way it's done but you know i'm only just beginning to 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 see this now the second part of this conversation will be available soon on LegalizeFreedom.com. That's Legalize-Freedom, and you can spell Legalize with an S or a Z.